Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus 32, chapters 1 to 20, and then 30 to 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives your sons and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow, there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have bowed, uh, sorry, they have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the singing, it is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. 
but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Wendy. All right, let's bow our heads and let's pray together. God, thank you for this story, uh, familiar to many of us. And so we pray that you would uh, make its truth come alive in a fresh way in a powerful way. Jesus, uh, speak to us through these words and make them like what you said your word is, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut us to the heart in order that you might give us life. So come and give us life. Send your spirit in this time. Uh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One evening in 2016, so a few years ago, during the Summer Games in Rio, four-time Olympian Ryan Lochte won yet another swimming gold medal. Amazingly, it was his 12th career medal, and with it, he surpassed Mark Spitz to stand alone as the second most decorated swimmer in Olympic history. That night, Ryan Lochte was the toast of the Olympics. And then, and then, a few short days later, Lochte appeared in the headlines again. But this time, it was because he and three other teammates initially reported that they had been robbed at gunpoint at a gas station in Rio. But then it turned out that Lochte had exaggerated part of the story and the American swimmers had actually vandalized the gas station in a drunken stupor and the gun-wielding man was actually a security guard. Lochte was charged by Brazilian authorities with falsely reporting a crime. He was suspended from swimming for 10 months, and the situation quickly became an international scandal. Details of that incident, they've been disputed, and the case was eventually dismissed, but no one, not least Lochte himself, could fail to notice his sudden and stunning fall from grace. In a recent interview, Lochte commented, everyone loved me and I was on top of the world and then in one stupid night, gone. The Israelites were on top of the world. They had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They were chosen and loved by God. They exchanged covenant vows with him, like people do in a wedding. God would be their God, and they would be his people. 
The Israelites were on the top of the world and then in one stupid night, they nearly lost it all. As our passage opens, they're encamped at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses is on top of the mountain meeting with God. The people approach Moses' brother Aaron and say in verse one, come make us gods who will go before us. Aaron tells them, give me your gold, your gold earrings, your jewelry. And we're told in verse four, he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And when God explains to Moses what just happened, he said in verse eight, they have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. The people eat and drink and indulge in revelry around this golden calf. Remember, they had just entered into covenant with God. And if covenant is like a marriage, this was like a bride or groom committing adultery during their own wedding reception. In a stunning fall of grace, the Israelites had fallen into what the Bible calls idolatry, the worship of other gods besides the true God. Let's talk about idolatry this morning because we're not as different from the Israelites as we might at first think. And this story teaches us a few important things, four brief lessons about idolatry. First, the, the meaning of idolatry, the, the hiding of idolatry, the fueling of idolatry, and finally, the healing of idolatry. First, the meaning of idolatry. What's idolatry? Idolatry is a problem of misplaced worship. Treating something or someone like a virtual God in your life. In other words, idolatry isn't merely a matter of bowing to a bovine statue made of gold. Spiritually speaking, an idol is anything, anything that you turn to and say, this will save me, deliver me, liberate me. This is what will truly make me happy. An idol is anything to which we turn and say, this is what makes me somebody. This is what I can't live without. This is who brought us up out of Egypt. See, understood this way, we can start to see how we can make an idol about just about anything. Our relationships, for example, we can say in our hearts, I must have this person's love. I bow down to their acceptance, whether if it's in home, the workplace, the neighborhood, or even the schoolyard kids. It's why so many of us are, are people pleasers. I know I am terrified of disappointing people. It's why so many of us are stuck in unhealthy relationships or not relationships, we can work up, worship our achievements, seeking to gain a, a sense of significance from them. It's why some of us overwork, why so many of you are so busy 
You think you're nothing, perhaps, unless you're doing things, a lot of things, busy things. Or idolatry can grow around our material possessions, where we look to our stuff to give us a, a sense of meaning and status in this world. So we go hard after house or money, and not to serve other people with those things, but to purchase a false sense of security. Now I've made it. Now I can live a trouble-free life. Now we will be safe. Or some of us may bow our knee, so to speak, to pleasure seeking happiness or comfort or relief at all costs. It's why even good gifts like alcohol or sex can so easily become addictions, and why even things like travel and adventure can creep into our hearts as something not just that we want, but that we need. See, friends, take a moment to reflect. What are the golden calves in your hearts, my heart? Are you letting relationships or, or achievements or possessions or, or pleasures or something else become idols in your hearts? Or here's a question that might be revealing. In the last two years, deep down, what were you most anxious or fearful that the pandemic might take away from you? What is it that lingers as an idol in the heart? See, but even questions like these can be hard to answer. Idolatry can be hard to detect. Why? This brings us to our second point, the hiding of idolatry. Recently, our family was watching one of those nature shows on TV where a cheetah, it's always a cheetah, a cheetah was hunting a family of cute little antelope. And it was one of those moments where you just want to yell at the TV, you know, watch out, she's coming, you don't see her, watch out. And thankfully, the baby antelope were mostly concealed by the tall grass but unfortunately, so was the cheetah. The cheetah was hidden too. Not only was she crouching low, as cats do, but her light brown fur and black spots made for the perfect camouflage against the tall light brown grass. Listen, like the camouflaged crouching cheetah, Idolatry is often hard to detect. It's hidden from our sight. And this passage shows us how it hides in two ways. First, idolatry typically involves good gifts from God. Where did the Israelites get the gold that was used to make the golden calf? God. You remember that? If you've been with us, you might remember that when the Israelites fled from Egypt, God moved in the hearts of the Egyptians to generously give them on their way out gold and silver and, and clothing. See, the golden calf was literally made out of the gifts of God. 
Likewise, idolatry is sometimes hard to detect because it often starts with the good things that we turn into poisonous things in our hearts. And so if maybe you're a parent, your children are, yes, a gift from God, but your children can become an idol. Uh, your grip on them can be really tight. Or financial security, or marriage, or romance. These are blessings from God. But desired too much, or pursued in the wrong way, they can become inordinate desires. Desires gone askew, desires that begin to define you in a way that God alone should. See, we've melted down the gifts of God and worship those things rather than the God, the giver of those gifts. Our hearts are deceived. Here's a second way that idolatry hides itself. The idols of our hearts are often camouflaged against the surrounding culture, like that cheetah. I mean, listen, why did Aaron and the Israelites make a statue of a calf and not, say, an eagle or a, or a bear or a tree? You know why? Guess who else worshiped idols in the form of a calf? That's right. The Egyptians, the Israelites' former neighbors. Hathar was a fertility goddess that was often depicted as a cow. The apis bull was believed to be the personal incarnation of the Egyptian god Tal. Uh, the Israelites were worshiping an idol that day an idol that was familiar, popular even, in their world. They were borrowing forms of idolatry from their neighbors, and we do too. And the point is that it's hard to detect when we do this because, well, everyone's doing it. It's popular, it's everywhere, and so it's camouflaged, it's hidden. I mean, think about uh, how much workaholism, the idolatry of our work in our city is not only almost universal, but is often rewarded. Or how normal it feels to think that your personal happiness or sense of fulfillment should be an ultimate priority in your choice of job or your friendships or your marriage such that if you're experiencing any kind of unhappiness, well, you just assume it couldn't possibly be what God wants for you, could it? Happiness is supreme, is God. And it's almost too easy to mention the stranglehold that politics can have on this town, but have you reckoned with the fact that if you have never had a substantive disagreement with your own party or partisan tribe, you've likely made an idol out of that too. The idols of our hearts are often sourced, shaped, influenced by the surrounding culture. Are you aware of that? So we can hardly even detect them because they're hidden. Everyone's worshiping cows. What's the big deal, right? The hiding of idolatry. 
The meaning of idolatry, the hiding of idolatry. Third point, the fueling of idolatry. This point will be brief, but I want to mention it because it's easy to look at the Israelites and be like, oh, what a bunch of boneheads. You know, how could they do this? There's just no explaining it. How can they do this? But we have to notice something. What was it that triggered the Israelites' making of the golden calf? What was it that fueled their idolatry? You know what it was? Fear. Look at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. See, here's the situation. Moses went up to the top of this mountain that, by the way, looked like a volcano. Right, so the odds are slim that he's ever coming down. It's been now a few hours, a few, it's been over a month since they've seen him or heard from him. And so now they're naturally, you might say, now they're worried, he's just dead, gone. And if that's true, that would mean that we're out here in the desert all alone where food and water are scarce and we're surrounded by these hostile nations. I mean, we're dead meat. Fear. So here's the lesson. We often run to idols, particularly when we are anxious or afraid, when we feel vulnerable or threatened. In other words, when we feel unlovable, that's when we most find ourselves running back to that unhealthy relationship, isn't it? Or when we feel unlovable, uh, for some of us it's a different thing, that's when we run to Amazon for some comfort shopping. Or when we feel like, let's be frank, a loser, a nobody. That's sometimes when we put in those extra hours of work, isn't it? Our grip tightens on our idols in these moments of, of fear or insecurity or uncertainty. And so we have to learn, benefit from the wisdom of God in pointing this out. We have to learn to be watchful in those moments of fear, especially. Be watchful, friends. So where does all of this leave us? I mean, idolatry can grow around in our hearts, grow around just about anything in our lives, even and maybe especially the good things. We've seen how idolatry is hidden and, and deceptive. It's really hard to detect. And that it's fueled and triggered by something we all struggle with all the time, fear. I mean, friends, we really need some help, don't we? We really need some help. We need some healing. So let's finish our time with the healing of idolatry. God gives us a few things in this passage, a few things that we need to see. First, see the insidiousness 
of our idolatry and turn from the idols of the heart. See the insidiousness of idolatry. Listen, in this passage, the second half, Moses does a lot of weird stuff, right? What's he doing when he sees the calf and we're told in verse 19 that he threw the two tablets of the covenant, breaking them into pieces. What is going on there? Moses is not just having a temper tantrum. He's dramatizing, enacting Israel's sin. He's showing them that they have broken into pieces their promise to God, their covenant. They've broken their relationship with God. It'd be like today a judge uh, publicly tearing an adulterer's marriage certificate in half. Moses is helping the Israelites to see and to feel their sin. He doesn't, doesn't just tell them with words. He wants to dramatize it so it strikes them in the heart and awakens them to God. He's trying to turn them back to God. He then burns the golden calf in the fire and ground it down into powder, making sure that they can witness the powerlessness of this idol. This lifeless figure can't save you. This cow doesn't love you. Then he sprinkles the powder, the ground up calf, and scatters it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. You're like, what? He's making them taste with their own lips, taste the bitterness of idolatry. He's showing them that idolatry is in fact spiritual suicide. You know, you keep on ingesting that stuff like you are spiritual, you're gonna starve, dehydrate, you're gonna die. Do we see and feel the ugliness of our idolatry? Moses completely destroyed the idol. Do you? Do you want to? Do you put the idols that maybe you've begun to identify in a closet, you know, maybe just in case? Or do you take it out to the trash bin? See, friends, here's an invitation to repentance. Secondly, see not only the insidiousness of idolatry, see the mercy of our mediator. God threatens to destroy his people. I mean, he ain't kidding around, right? But he's not being capricious or grumpy or merely angry, though his anger burns fiercely against our sin. Yes, judgment is what idolatry deserves. But did you also notice this? Did you also see how Moses advocates for the people? How he pleads on their behalf before God. How he prays for their forgiveness. In verse 11, we're told that he sought the favor of the Lord. He appeals to God's covenant. God, you promised. You promised you would be their God. 
He reminds God of his saving love. You've, you've brought them out of Egypt. He points God to his own public reputation, his commitment to displaying his glory among the nations, especially Egypt. And in verse 32, Moses goes up to the Lord and prays, please forgive their sins. And don't you know, oh dear fellow recovering idolaters, Moses was but a shadow, a, a preview of the greater Moses, our true mediator, our true advocate, Jesus, who even now, at God's right hand, is praying for us, pleading for our forgiveness, pouring out blood-bought mercy upon our lives. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, we're told that Moses actually did this pleading with God. He said, prostrate, fasting before God, taking neither food nor drink, pleading with God. He said he did it for 40 days and nights. Jesus will do this forever. Pleading for God's mercy upon you and me, as 1 John 2 tells us, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In verse 32, Moses went as far as to offer himself as a substitute as an atoning sacrifice himself for his people. Blot me out of the book you have written. He said to God, can you believe it? Take me instead. Moses was willing to die for his people. You know what? God didn't accept his offer because one day, on a hill far away, on an old rugged cross, there would be a better offer, a better offer from a better mediator. One, one offer that he would accept, where Jesus would say, blot out my life for their sins, and God would say, amen. We sang these lyrics last week, we need to hear them again. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me because that sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me and pardon you and set you free. This is the gospel. Will you see the gospel in this way? Do you see the mercy of our mediator? Jesus forgives you, forgives you of all your idolatries. And finally, we need to see the greatness of our God. See the filthiness, the odiousness, the ugliness of our sin. See the mercy of our mediator. See finally the greatness of 
our God. Later in the Old Testament, when Psalm 106.19 reflects back on what happened at Sinai, it says this, they made a calf and worshiped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them. Remember your God who saved you. Our eyes drift to different suitors. When we forget the true lover of our souls. See, idolatry grows in our hearts when we lose sight of Jesus. His soul-satisfying love, his captivating, captivating beauty, his perfect power. See, because here's what we have to remember. Everything we're desperately hoping our idols will give us, the true God has already promised to be and has already been for us. See, we bow our knees to acceptance in our relationships, but God already said to Israel, you are my people. I accept you. We're starving for significance. God assured his people, though, you are my treasured possession, the most valuable thing I've got. You're important. You're significant. We lust after happiness. But God says, come by my side. In my presence is fullness of joy. We're starving for security, but God declares, I brought you up out of slavery and no one will snatch you out of my hand. Beloved, God alone can provide true love, true significance, true acceptance, true reputation, true freedom, true joy, true salvation. So gaze upon the Lord. Take account of who he has been for you. See the greatness of God in Christ because the final healing of our idolatry comes not just by saying no to the idols, but by saying yes to God, to seeing his beauty, majesty, and soul-satisfying glory. So here's an invitation, isn't it, to a better joy a more secure hope, and an eternal salvation. Here's an invitation to the living God, the real God. Let's pray. Convince our hearts, O Holy Spirit, that these things are true. Whether we need a wooing or a whooping, you know what we need. But what we do know we need is Jesus and his soul-satisfying love, drawing us into repentance, helping us to see his mercy, and enlarging our vision of the greatness of our God. Do this now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen.